Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why cognitive flexibility can help you roll with the punches, dinosaurs that lived and nested in the cold of the Arctic, and why rare, glowing, noctilucent clouds are appearing more often these days. Let's satisfy some curiosity. The pandemic affected people's lives in a lot of different ways. But at least one thing is true for everyone. Things changed. Well, it turns out that humans have a special skill that helps us adapt to new circumstances. It's called cognitive flexibility. And researchers have recently made some progress in understanding what it is and how to get better at it. Cognitive flexibility is what lets a person change what they're doing to fit in new situation. The COVID-19 lockdowns required heaps of cognitive flexibility, but it's a big factor in everyday life, too. You need it for some extremely common challenges, from changing from one task to another to dealing with something unexpected in your day. Psychologists still have a lot of questions about just what the skill is, but they've figured out that it's made up of specific abilities— Those include things like identifying relevant details, controlling your attention, and using your working memory. But here's the thing. Some people are better at it than others. That matters because people with greater cognitive flexibility tend to have, well, better lives in a lot of ways. They're better readers during childhood. They're more resilient to stress and more creative as adults. And in old age they have a higher quality of life. Well, the good news is that it's possible to improve cognitive flexibility. One way is to do a familiar task in a different way. Simply taking an alternative route home might do the trick. Meeting new people and trying new things are also thought to help. There's solid evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy can improve the skill by giving people tools to think about situations differently. And there are also special therapies available for people with conditions that inhibit cognitive flexibility, like autism. Psychologists still have a lot to learn about cognitive flexibility, including details about how it works in the brain. But even without that knowledge, it's an important topic because it plays a key role in a person's success in life and in a society's ability to confront challenges. So step off that pedestal, IQ, and make room for a psychological skill that underlies creativity, curiosity, and empathy. That's cognitive flexibility. When imagining a dinosaur, many people tend to place them in warm locations, maybe lush green forests or rocky deserts. But paleontologists have known for a long time that some intrepid dinos made their way as far north as the Arctic Circle. Now we know that they weren't just visitors. At least seven species likely lived and nested in the Arctic year-round. Researchers from the University of Alaska Museum of the North have been making treks into the Arctic to search for fossils for over a decade. Their target? The Prince Creek Fossil Site, a spot in a remote part of northern Alaska that's only accessible first by airplane and then by rafting down an Arctic river. It's the farthest north that dinosaur fossils have ever been discovered. And because of that, it's a really important dig site. While sifting through soil collected at the dig site, researchers made a fascinating discovery. They found the teeth of at least seven different dinosaur species. 
But these weren't just any teeth. They were the dinosaur equivalent of baby teeth. Each one was just one to two millimeters across, smaller than a grain of rice. The teensy teeth came from dinosaurs that died either before or right after hatching. This is the first evidence that dinosaurs were nesting in the Arctic Circle 70 million years ago. This is a big deal because even though paleontologists knew that dinosaurs were that far north, they had assumed that those dinosaurs must have migrated there instead of living there permanently. But that assumption has always been a little problematic. The researchers suggest that if dinosaurs did migrate, they would be looking at a roughly 1,800-mile or 3,000-kilometer round trip. The fact that dinosaurs were nesting in the far north rules out the possibility of migration. That's because if dinosaurs laid their eggs when vegetation first appeared in spring, their eggs would have hatched as winter approached. Not a great survival strategy for vulnerable young. It also suggests that these species were warm-blooded and that they could survive, if not thrive, in the dark winter of the far north. That leaves just one question. If there were Arctic dinos, I wonder if there were also Arctic monkeys. Maybe when the sun goes down? You got me. I don't know any Arctic monkey songs. Me neither. I literally Googled that. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> Sorry, I'll try to snap out of it. It's from a 2014 album. Mm. Good. This past June, folks in North America and Europe were treated to a rare sight. A bright blue glow in the nighttime sky thanks to what are called noctilucent clouds. These unusual clouds are only getting more common, and you might be able to see one for yourself soon. Noctilucent clouds are wispy, glowing clouds that can only be seen after sunset or before sunrise. They peak in June and July in the Northern Hemisphere, and they've been seen as early as May and as late as August. Scientists are still studying what causes noctilucent clouds to form. The leading theory comes down to dust from meteorites. That's why we've seen so many recently. This summer, scientists have observed lots of meteorite dust making its way from the Arctic Circle down farther south. When meteorites hit our atmosphere, they usually break up into fine dust. This dust collects right at the very edge of our atmosphere, around 50 miles or 80 kilometers up, where the temperature is minus 180 degrees Fahrenheit, or 120 degrees Celsius. Water vapor forms tiny ice crystals on these fine particles. And normally, when sunlight shines through them, they're invisible. But a special thing happens about an hour after the sun sets. The sun's rays reflect off the fine crystals and make them glow. The spectacular color comes from the interaction of the light with the ozone layer. As light passes through the ozone layer, the red light is mostly filtered out, which turns these clouds a brilliant blue. But the number of noctilucent cloud sightings have been increasing, and it seems like our changing climate is playing a role. Scientists have hypothesized that the increasing amount of methane in our atmosphere could be leading to more water vapor at the highest parts of our atmosphere. And although sightings used to be mostly in the far north, they've recently been seen as far south as Spain and Texas. But anyway... You probably want to catch a glimpse, right? Well, here's how to see them. Noctilucent clouds typically appear 30 to 60 minutes after the sun sets or before the sun rises. Stand facing the position where the sun has set or will rise. 
They're more common near the horizon. So try to get an unobstructed view. But if you can't, don't sweat it. They can sometimes be seen higher up. The clouds will look like thin, wispy threads, and they'll glow bright blue. You might even see silhouettes of other clouds in front of them. So, happy cloud hunting. All right, well, let's recap what we learned today. Starting with the fact that cognitive flexibility is a skill that helps us adapt to new and changing situations. Stuff like changing from one task to another or dealing with an unexpected assignment at work. People who are good at cognitive flexibility are more resilient to stress and have a higher quality of life. And you can improve yours just by changing up things in your day, like taking a different route to work, meeting new people, and trying new activities. And of course, cognitive behavioral therapy can also help. A great way to practice is board games. Really complicated board games. Ashley, this is like what you need to be really good at board games. Did you know this? Really? There's a lot of advanced strategy board games where there will be, let's say, three to five different victory conditions. And maybe at the start of the game, you go, oh, I'm going to go with condition A, and I'm just going to do everything to build towards that. Well, then another player starts to go towards condition A, and then you're like, well, the optimal play would really be to go towards condition B. I'll maybe get further towards that goal if I do this on my turn. Or I could do something and more slowly make my way towards condition A. And you have to constantly adapt to which condition is going to be best for you based on what the other players are doing and what moves are available to you based on the resources that you have. So I've been playing more board games lately. I've actually started seeing human beings in real life and playing board games. And like, this is cognitive flexibility. Playing a board game like Beyond the Sun or Terraforming Mars or Dominion or lots of other games. Yeah, that's how you do it. I'm going to argue with you and say that there's one thing before cognitive flexibility that you need to be really good at board games. And that is you have to actually like playing board board games. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not me. I'm not saying that I have all the cognitive flexibility in the world. I'm just saying I cannot stand sitting at a table and having people explain rules to me and then not getting in and then having everyone be like, no, you can't move there. You have to move here. Oh, let me just sit and have a conversation. So you don't want to play. I know I'm in the minority here. It's just I, you know, I got to speak my truth. There are only two of us. How are you in the minority? Here? <laughs> I just mean in general, in on earth, I am in the minority. Are you? Not many people are like, I don't like games. I don't like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe you don't want to spend 12 hours playing Twilight Imperium, but I don't think that makes you that weird. No, but it's just it's just the le the learning of a new game is just torture for me. I just don't like it. Especially when it's with people who who really know the game and then they're like pushy about it. I just, oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of baggage there. Let's move on. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Game's not for everybody. But if you want to work on your cognitive flexibility, I'm just saying. But hey, we also learned some other stuff today, including the fact that several species of dinosaur probably lived and nested in the Arctic year-round. Scientists think that based on teeny tiny dino teeth they found in the region, which were probably from dinosaurs that died either right before or right after hatching. Laying eggs there wouldn't have been a good survival strategy for dinos who were only visiting, since the eggs would have hatched when winter approached and the young probably wouldn't have survived, so it's likely that these dinos lived there year-round 
which also suggests they were warm-blooded. And it suggests they were warm-blooded because cold-blooded animals, their blood adjusts to the temperature of their surroundings. So they can't stay warm in the cold. They would be cold in the cold, which is why you see things like frogs freezing and lizards falling off of trees in Florida during the winter. Gross. Yep. And we learned that noctilucent clouds are clouds that shine bright blue at nighttime. They form in the very highest reaches of the atmosphere, possibly with the help of meteorite dust. No big deal. As rays from the setting or rising sun reflect off of these fine crystals, they glow, and the ozone layer filters out their red wavelengths to make them appear blue. If you want to see them and you live in a decently high latitude, go out around sunset or sunrise and watch the horizon. I'm not sure if I've seen these or not. I think I may have, and I didn't know what I was looking at. You should definitely go look up pictures of noctilucent clouds so you know what you're seeing when you see it. Yeah, I think I'll opt for the sunset option, not the sunrise (laughs) option. Not a a sunrise kind of guy. I know I'm in the minority here. (laughs) I see what you did there. Today's writers were Grant Curran, Cameron Duke, and Brianna Brownell. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer. Our producer and audio editor is Cody Goff. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a noctilucent cloud. That's pretty cool. So, uh, anyway, join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.